Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2? And I want to remind you that we have today and next Lord's Day on Philippians, and then we are done. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. And I want to invite you to stand if you can. Starting verse 1, here's the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation or fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. Nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please be seated. Let us pray. Oh Lord, how majestic is your name. How glorious is your word, and how wonderful is your work. We pray that you'd help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to embrace your truth. Speak to us, Lord. As young Samuel once said, speak, O Lord, that your servant is listening. That's our desire. Help me to be faithful. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen. Amen. There is no doubt that the death of Jesus Christ is a fundamental, or you can say a crucial, aspect of the Christian faith. We are always singing about the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ. And that takes centrality in the gospel of Jesus. Paul, he believes that the gospel of the cross, the gospel of the death of Jesus, is so important that he would tell the Corinthians, for I resolve to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To the Galatians, He says, Far be it from me to boast except, where? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's how precious, how powerful the death of Christ is. Paul also, in 1 Corinthians 15, He says, Now I want to remind you, brothers, of the Gospel. And then he says, For I deliver to you of, as of first importance, 
primary things, not secondary, primary things. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. It's from the death of Jesus that all the blessings of God flow. It was on the cross that Jesus took our griefs and carried our sorrows. It was the crucifixion of Christ that demonstrated God's love for us. Romans 5. Jesus' death redeemed us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3. It was His blood that brought redemption for us. Ephesians 1. The cross canceled the record of debt that stood against us. His death gave us the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins. We have now been justified by His blood shed on the cross. Jesus' death took away our condemnation. His blood purifies our conscience. And so many other blessings that flow from the death of Jesus Christ. But I fear that the church has forgotten one of the most important and most fundamental blessings of the death of Jesus. And that is to make His people one. The unity of the church. We live in a society that's so individualistic, self-centered, that we never think about the death of Christ as bringing this wonderful and glorious blessing of uniting us. It's always me. Oh, it brought me heaven. brought me pardon. brought me peace. And we forget that the death of Christ is actually to bring us together. So, for example, in John chapter 10, we have the wonderful discourse from Jesus when He shows Himself to be the, the Davidic shepherd that would come, that Ezekiel prophesied. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And then He goes on to say, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, referring to Christians who are not Jews, who are not part of Israel. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be what? One flock. The unity of Christ, when this great shepherd is stricken and smitten, and he brings his sheep together. In John chapter 11, John explains the words of the high priest. And John says, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The unity of the church, making his people one. In John chapter 17, the wonderful prayer of Jesus, He says, Holy Father, keep them in Your name, which You have given Me, that they may be what? One, even as we are one. He continues in that prayer. He says, I do not ask for this only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be what? one also. He says once again that they may all be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in Me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know 
that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That's how powerful and how precious the unity of the church is. That He died and that His last words as He's praying is for the what? The unity of His people. And I have heard people saying a horrible thing. They have said that this prayer has never been answered. People have said that's the only prayer of Jesus that has never been answered. As if the perfect high priest failed in this mediation role of interceding for his people. No, it has been accomplished. And his people are one no matter what. He has brought his people. He has united his people. And it's the duty of the local church to resemble that. In the life of the local church to show the unity that Jesus has already accomplished. Paul, following the heart of Jesus, writes over and over and again about the importance of the unity in the local church. You cannot read the New Testament letters without noticing the emphasis on being united. You read Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, all there. A call for the church to be united. The unity of the church was so vital and fundamental that Paul called that the mystery. That was the mystery of God that was hidden. He explained this mystery in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is this unity among the people of God through the gospel. Paul goes on in Ephesians, he says in Ephesians chapter 3, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers. And the wisdom of God here refers to the Lord bringing and uniting Himself one people. And now the church becomes the theater where God displays His wisdom. His majesty, by bringing people from all sorts of different backgrounds, culture, educational background, financial background, and uniting them and making them one. That's why the church becomes the theater of God's wisdom. It becomes the theater that displays the gospel of the triune God, the Trinity, three persons in unity. That's how... Precious and important the unity is. Think about the opposite of unity. Disunity, dissension, strife. That's the mark of fallen men. As soon as sin entered, what do we have there? The husband and the wife, what? It's her fault. Dissension. Brother killing brother. Lack of unity in the church as the consequence of the fall. But the, ch- but the church is not in Adam. The church is not in Adam. Adam is marked by division and strife. Where is the church? In Christ. The new man. Therefore, we must be marked by this unity that we find in the Trinity. 
When people look at the church, they must see people from different backgrounds, different social classes, different levels of education, different color of skin, different cultures, all united in their love for Christ Jesus, reflecting thus the image of the Trinity, the triune God. Paul says, that's very fascinating, he says that one of the marks of a life that matches the gospel is zeal to maintain the unity in the local church. Look at what he says in Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner, one in chains for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And remember, to work in a manner worthy of the calling is to walk in a manner that matches the gospel of Christ. The calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing to one another in love, listen to this, eager, zealous to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the chains of peace. The mark of a true believer, the mark of a person who loves Christ, is one who is zealous and eager to get his way in the church. No, but you preserve the chains of peace that the Holy Spirit has brought and united us with. A person who is not zealous, we can do the opposite, who is not zealous or eager to maintain the unity of the church, is unworthy of his calling. He doesn't match the calling of God in his life. And notice that Paul says, eager to what? Create the unity. Is that what he says? Eager to create the unity? Eager to what? Maintain. Who created the unity? Christ in His death. The Holy Spirit coming. We don't create the unity. Our duty and our role is to do what? Maintain. That's what God calls us to. Maintain. Preserve the unity that He bought with His blood. Think about the greatest chapter about love in the Bible. What is the greatest love chapter in the Bible? 1 Corinthians 13. What is the context? A man and a woman getting married? That's what you'd think, right? You always hear this passage being taught during a wedding. But what's going on in Corinth? Division. This unity. That's where it's flowing, that chapter of love. What love is to fight against this unity and division in the local church. And that's why we have serious, serious warnings to those who create division in a local church. So, for example, Paul says in Romans 16, verse 17, I exhort you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division. Avoid them. Sometimes the division will be by teaching, people who come to teach, or through actions and words in the church. So in Titus he says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, is self-condemned. So, brothers and sisters, be careful. Be careful entertaining. Entertaining divisive words coming from Beloved brothers and sisters in the church. And sometimes it's the ones that you have the best relationship with. 
And they're going to use their relationship to come. I just need to vent a little bit about this church, something that happened to me. Let me just share with you my frustration about something in this church with you. Have nothing to do with divisive people. Brother, sister, you have an issue with so and so. Have you gone there? Have you gone to him? Have you gone to her, first of all? Have you done that before coming to me? So, that's how the unity of the church is precious in God's sight. And I, I, I thought when we were going through chapter 2 of Philippians, we have the, the, the sermons there. I expanded more about this. And that leads us to what's going on in Philippi. And there is a, a clear threat to the unity of the church in Philippi. That's a, a marvelous church. Paul loves this church. He has a peculiar affection towards this church. We don't know if any major heresy that's flowing throughout the church, like with the Galatians. But we know that there is a crack in the unity of the church. When I was preaching about Yodi and Syntyche, I told you about the dam that holds the water. And sometimes just a tiny little crack grows. And then you have a massive disaster. And that's what Paul sees. He sees a crack in the unity of the church that he loves so much. A church that is faithful in a partnership in the gospel. And to continue this partnership in advancing the gospel, the church cannot be divided. They must be united. An army cannot advance divided. A family cannot prevail divided. So that's what Paul is doing. So the first major exhortation in the letter, the first major exhortation that comes is in chapter 1, verse 27 through 28. And Paul is exhorting them to be united. Stand firm. Striving side by side. The first exhortation of the letter is related to the unity of the church. And then he closed the letter also with a call to unity. Exhorting Yodi and Syntyche to be with one mind in the Lord. Then he calls the whole church to help. And then he finishes with that greeting for all of them, all the members, to embrace each other's whole affection, a call to unity in the church. Also the repetition of y'all, y'all. That's something that Paul doesn't do with other letters, but he's always referring to you all, you all. His repetition of standing firm, striving side by side, agree in the Lord, be of one mind. And then, of course, in chapter 4, verse 2, when he publicly calls two sisters in the church to what? To be united. All these things show us that Paul is writing this letter and he sees a little crack in the unity and they must repair that to preserve to maintain the unity that Jesus bought with His blood. Amen? So, and we know the, the threat to the unity comes from external persecution and internal sinful actions. External persecution is it's a very clever scheme of Satan to, to bring division in the church. Because as soon as you have persecution, some of the members, what do they want to do? 
self-preservation. And suddenly, they are no longer meeting and hiding, splitting the unity of the church. And then there is also the internal problem that is sin that remains inside us. And that's all we see happening in the church in Philippi. So, Paul not only sees the problem, but he sees the solution. And the remedy, the solution for a church that is divided, a church that has a fracture there in the unity, is by calling all the members of the church to do what? Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this fronel, this pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that's yours in Christ Jesus. That's key. He's calling the church to have the mind of Christ. And as we come to chapter 2, you can turn there, chapter 2. I told you that chapter 2 is, is the Mount Everest of Philippians. Remember, that's the, the pinnacle of theological truth. That's the most glorious top that we can reach in Philippians. One scholar says, This passage is the climax of the argument of the epistle. In saying this, I mean that the arguments, both preceding and following, draw their force from this passage, which poetically narrates Christ's status and activity, in addition to being... Uh, a crucial component of the epistle as a whole, this is one of the most theologically significant passages in the New Testament. Few other passages in the New Testament have generated more scholarly literature. So it's a beautiful, powerful, glorious text. And that, I believe, is the main exhortation of the whole letter. Everything is flowing from this exhortation. And it's calling the church to adopt a pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that is there is in Christ Jesus. So he says, have this, what? The ESV says mind, but that's a, and that's a word that I want you to pay attention. The Greek word is phronel. Phronel. Have this phronel among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. First of all, you need to go to the context. And I'll help you here. And you can see the use of the, the, this Greek root, phronel. So, in chapter 2, verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same phronel, having the same love, being full accord, one phronel. Do nothing from selfish ambition and empty conceit, but in humility. Having humility here, use the word phronel. Hello. A low pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting connect to yourself. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And now Paul comes with the exhortation. You see, have this mind, this mind that I'm talking about, of having one fronel, one love, one soul, one mind. Nothing from selfish ambition. In humility, count others more significant. Have this mind among you. And then people are going to say, give us an example. And then he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now he describes Jesus as the one with this mindset. With this pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. That's all we see in Philippians 
chapter 2. So, let me give you the meaning of this word. The Greek word phronel. If you have the ESV, you're going to see that's translated throughout Philippians in different ways. Sometimes it's translated as few. Sometimes it's translated as agree, mind, think, be concerned. The basic meaning that this word carries is of a Christ-like pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. And that's the... And that's the hard thing with translation. Sometimes you, it's impossible to translate some words with one word equivalent, one to one. And you know that if you have done any translation from, from English to Spanish, Spanish to English, it's really hard sometimes to... And the same with languages in the Bible. So there are words that I think the best way is to keep a transliteration. What is a transliteration? It's how you say the word. So, for example, I think the best way is to keep the Yahweh. That's a transliteration of the Hebrew word. Or, Hesed. Do you remember when you were studying the book of Ruth and you had the Hebrew word Hesed? Sometimes it's translated as love. Sometimes it's translated as grace. Sometimes it's translated as uh, goodness. And the whole idea behind Hesed is that covenantal loyalty and love. Covenantal faithfulness that's manifest through love. So it's really hard to translate. That's why I think it's better just to keep with the transliteration. Hesed. And people need to understand the concept behind the word. Parakletos. The name of the Holy Spirit. The parakletos will come. Sometimes it's comforter. Is that comforter his name? But there's so many important meanings behind this word, it's hard to get just one word. So, and that's why we have fronel. The word derives from, we have the friend there, that's the root word, related to the parts around the heart. One Dictionary says they combine the visceral and the cognitive aspects of thinking. So the visceral was the feeling. Remember the stomach back in the in ancient times. The stomach was where they felt emotions and affections. The heart related to thinking, and that's what this word carries the idea: thinking, feeling, acting, will, affections, conscience. One example is in Mark chapter eight. In Mark chapter 8, remember Jesus tells for the first time publicly to His disciples that He will suffer many things. He will die. And what does Peter do? He rebukes Jesus. And look how Jesus says to him, But turning and seeing His disciples, He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your what? The translation is mind, but it's the fronel. It's your thinking, feeling, and acting on the things of God. And we know that because Peter is not just thinking, he's acting and he's feeling indignant. In Colossians 3, verse 2, Paul says, Set your what? Your fronel, your pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. 
And we know that because you continue reading Colossians chapter 3, and you know that Paul is going to talk about actions and affections. So this mind, this thrownail that we are to set on the things above, is a pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. According to the Scriptures, how we think affects how we behave and feel. So here, thrownail is inseparable from a proper thinking, godly actions, and Christ-like affections. Paul used this word at least ten times in Philippians. And as one scholar says, in Philippians, Fronel spells out a specific way of looking at life that is in step with the gospel. That's a key word. The first time that this word is used, the first time, no, the time that's used for non-Christians is in chapter 3, verse 19. Paul is talking about the enemies of the gospel, and he says, their end, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their thronel, their pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting is earthly. That's very similar to Romans chapter 8, verse 5, where Paul says that the carnal mind has this thronel set on carnal things. So the person who is not regenerated, he has this pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that is against the spiritual things. Are we clear about Fronel? That's important. Because you're going to see how Paul used this word throughout this letter. As he's calling the whole church to be united. Unity comes with a pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. That's deriving from Christ Himself. So, in two, in chapter 2, we briefly saw that. He says, so if there is any encouragement, the if there is an if of provocation. It's, a, it's an if that could be translated as since. Because, of course, we have these things in Christ. Since there is encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, fellowship in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. You see, that's the grounds for the exhortation. Our unity with the triune God, the blessings of the Trinity, encouragement or comfort from Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Spirit. And now Paul, in verse 2, he brings his exhortation in, with the foundation of who we already have in Christ. Then he says, Complete my joy. Complete my joy. Bring my joy to the fullest. By being of the same way. Fronel. Being of the same mind. And then he puts something else here. Having the same love. Being one spirit or full accord, the ESV says. And then he comes once again with the fronel. Having one mind. As if there was a sandwich. And the fronel is there and the affections are in the middle. And you need them together. And there is an aspect that Paul is dealing here that there must be an agreement. There must be an agreement of conviction. How we think. How we think about the gospel. What we think, what we understand about the gospel. There must be an agreement in the local church. We must be united in this thronel as you comes when it comes to what we believe about the gospel. There can be no unity in a church 
if you have a bunch of people believing all sorts of different things. Amen? You can't. Unity is not achieved simply by how we feel about certain people. Feelings and affection will not hold true unity. We will not be able to keep holding and preserving true unity. There must be a unity of conviction, a unity of certainty of what we believe about the gospel. And here's where the role of a very clear statement of faith plays its part. The church must have a clear statement of faith as to what we, what we believe and what we hold us together when it comes to our conviction. Sadly, if you go to church websites, more and more you see how the statement of faith are becoming what? Less precise, weaker. Do you know why? We just want to unite people. Doctrine divides. And then suddenly you're in a church where you have people teaching all sorts of things. You go to one group, people are teaching one thing, reformed doctrine. Then you go to the other group, they're just Armenian. Then you go to another group, they believe that women should be pastors. Then you go to the other group, oh no, women should... In one church. There's no unity of conviction. What holds us together? We must have unity in the understanding of the gospel, the basic biblical truths that will hold us together. It's impossible to maintain communion where there is confusion about doctrine. It's impossible to maintain communion among the saints where there is confusion when it comes to doctrine. So, in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you, the ESV says, agree together. It's actually to speak the same thing. Paul tells the church to speak the same thing. What does it mean? He's calling a divided church to speak the same thing. What is that? I exhort you, brothers, to speak the same thing. To have one confession, what you believe about the gospel. Because you have people in the church that's creating havoc because they believe different things about the most fundamental and important things of the gospel. Speak the same thing. Confess the same things. That's basic for a unity in the church. But we know that doctrinal unity is not enough. That's why Paul, you can see, he says, same mind, same love, one spirit, one mind. He mixes the thinking with what? The feeling. Unity of doctrine is not enough. We need to have a unity of affection. We must be standing upon the solid ground of conviction. And that solid ground of conviction will affect how we feel towards each other. So Paul says, having the same love, having the same love. What same love? What sameness is there? Same love 
the same love of Christ towards one another, the same love towards one another. That's what Paul is calling. The same love. What love is that? 1 Corinthians 13. A love that does not keep track, record of the wrongdoings. You see, some of you carry a notebook. Some of you carry a notebook. And you're always writing down all the wrong that people have done to you. And you keep that notebook always with you. And as soon as something takes place, you bring that notebook and like, look at that. Look how you did to me. That's not love. People leave the church and then suddenly they, they, they bring a, a suitcase of notebooks full of wrongdoings that people have done. What love is that? What unity of love and affection is that they keep records of wrong? There is no conversation dealing with things. So you can agree with all the doctrinal statements of a local church, but if you are not willing to love the members of that church like Christ loves them, you will be a hindrance to the unity of the church. Because if the church is built only, only on doctrinal conviction, when someone hurts you, do you know what you're going to do? You're going to pack your bags and you're going to find a different church where you have similar doctrinal convictions. Just move. Because you have no unity of affection. Love must be the unbreakable chains that hold our convictions together. And then Paul explains in verse 3 and 4 how this must be done. Doing nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, empty vain, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Chapter 1, verse 7. Paul used the word now again. Paul says, For it's right for me to... Uh, the ESV says, to feel this way. The word is thronel. It's right, it's proper, it's just for me to have this pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting towards you. That's what he's saying. That's not shallow sentimentality. It's right for me to feel this way just because I feel like. That's our society. I feel like. Paul says, it's right, it's just. For me to have this pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting towards you. Why, Paul? Why can you say that's right? Because I can see their lives. I can see their faithfulness to the gospel. I can see their love towards Christ. I can see their love towards me. Therefore, it's right, it's just for me to have this pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting towards you. And you can see it's full of language of affection. Go there to chapter 1. Look at verse 3. That's how he starts. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making my prayers with what? Joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm certain that he who began the good battle among you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Look at now, it's the context. It's right for me to have this pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting towards you. Because I hold you in my heart. You have all. 
You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my chains and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ. You see the relation between a pattern of thinking and feeling. It's right, it's proper to, for me to think about you this way and feel this way about you. And Paul here, he's saying that because he wants the church to follow his example. That's why he keeps saying, follow my example. And he wants the church members to have the same pattern. He wants all the members to look at each other and say, it's proper, it's right for me to feel this way, think this way, and act this way towards you, Jesse. That's what he wants. All the members looking at each other and acting just like he's doing. Chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3, remember, remember the context. The beautiful testimony of Paul. Remember, he, he, he counts all his earthly blessings as garbage. And then he says in verse 15, chapter 3, Let those of us who are mature, what? Fronel, fronel this way. Have this pattern of thinking, feeling and acting. Paul defines spiritual maturity in Philippians as the mindset that thinks, acts, and feels like Christ. And he's out, he, right before that, he's just showing himself to be following the example of Christ in chapter 2. Christ emptied himself. And Paul emptied himself in chapter 3. And then he's saying, for us, that's spiritual maturity. It's this pattern of thinking feeling and acting. Spiritual maturity is not for how long you have been in church. People think that spiritual mature are those who have been in church 30, 40 years, 50 years. Oh, that person has been in church 80 years. And a lot of times that person is a fool. Spiritual maturity is marked by the one who has the pattern of thinking, feeling and acting like Christ. Chapter 2, humbling himself, seeking the best of others. Chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your what? Your fronel. Thank you, Jesse. Your fronel towards me. You indeed had that fronel. But you had no opportunity to demonstrate that. So here, we see fronel as that pattern of thinking Feeling and what? Acting. Action. They're acting towards Paul. Thinking, feeling, and acting towards Paul. One scholar writes, Throughout Philippians, Paul has used this verb to indicate a particular disposition toward a Christ-focused pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. This cannot be well expressed by words like care or concern. Paul is not invoking a therapeutic notion of care such as is, as is common in most American churches. The cruciform patterns of thinking, feeling, and acting that Paul desires to see created form in the Philippians may at times generate a warm and fuzzy emotional state. But that's not really at the heart of Paul's concern. Paul rejoices because the Philippians have again displayed a disposition to think and act in a particular way towards him in the light of his tribulations. Specifically, 
This involved, among other things, sending Epaphroditus to him with a financial gift. Not enough just to profess that we believe the same things. Not enough just to profess that we have the same affection. You've got to show that. Amen? And that's what they're doing. They're showing. And it's beautiful when you compare 4.10 with chapter 1, verse 7, because it's the same structure. Paul says, it's right for me to have this fronel towards you. And now he rejoices because they have this fronel towards Paul. Last passage. Chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says, I exhort Yodia, I exhort Syntyche, to what? Fronel. Fronel in the Lord. To have that same pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting in the Lord. And now you know, as you come towards the, 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 the conclusion of the letter, and you have this final exhortation to these two sisters, you know that Paul is taking us back to where? Chapter 2. What is the fronel that he's asking? The fronel of chapter 2. Exemplified by Christ, required in the preceding verses. That's amazing that Paul calls these two faithful sisters. He calls their attention from where? From the pulpit. Remember, this letter was read to the whole congregation. Paul is calling, we can even say, bringing a holy embarrassment to two faithful sisters in the church. Do you know why? He's more concerned with the unity of the church than how they're going to feel. He's more concerned with the unity of the church than with their names. So, Paul calls them to thronel in the Lord. To have the same pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that he has demonstrated in chapter 2. Paul is exhorting these two faithful Christians who are in disagreement with one another to come to unity of love by adopting the same pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that they had before. And something now happened, came across their relationship that's bringing something that's disrupting this unity that they had before. So Paul is saying, Yodia, it says if he's bringing Yodia by his side, remember, he exhorts each one individually. He says, Yodia, stop being Yodia. Start being like Christ. Sintiki, stop being Sintiki. Be who you are in Christ. Bring back that pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that you had earlier. You were with me striving side by side. So, as we come towards the end here, as you put together these verses of the use of fronel, you see how Paul used the word fronel, this pattern of thinking, feeling, acting. It's always a mixture of the way we think and our affections. We must have that. Affections and thinking and acting and goal and purpose that's flowing from our union with Christ. 
First, we saw that it's so vital for the church to maintain the unity. We have a, a duty. Every single member in this church, you have a duty. You have an obligation to preserve the unity of this church. Amen? And Paul tells us how. By adopting this mindset, this pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting towards others. And there must be this pattern of thinking, agreement doctrinally, and this unity of affection. There must be. Only doctrinal agreement is not enough, and only affections are not enough. We need both. Amen? We must not only agree with one another as to ecclesiology, theology, protology, eschatology, Christology, ecclesiology, Yes, we, we must have agreement in these things, but that's not enough. We must have an agreement of love, affection. As I said, and that's something we have been seeing in this church, if, you, if it's only doctrinal conviction, you will look for a different church as soon as you get hurt. As soon as you don't get the way you want things, you're going to look for a different place. Because the only thing that's holding you together is your belief. And this belief is not connecting to affection. And if it's only affection, that's a very shaky ground. Because your feelings change. Your feelings are not always right. People leave church because they got their feelings hurt. And then you examine what happened. It was not even that that took place. But I, that's how I felt. That's how I felt. But that's not what took place. How about our unity in our understanding of the truth of the gospel? And our understanding of what love is? And the arms of Christ embracing us? J.C. Ryle once said that unity without the gospel is worthless. It's the very unity of hell itself. And then the question is, what does a united church look like? What does a church that's eager, as Paul says, zealous to maintain the unity in the chains of the Spirit look like? Is the only way to find a church like that going to the church in Jerusalem in the first century? Brothers and sisters, as I look at this church, by God's grace, I see a church that's eager, zealous to maintain as the primary state, a state of unity. Look around us and you see the diversity. Ethnical, cultural, social. And despite all the diversity, we have the unity of thinking, feeling, and acting. And unity of purpose. That's the thronel. I see a lot of people here with very different, different takes as it comes to secondary issues. Not things of first importance, as Paul says. Secondary issues. But yet, in the primary issues, united. 
And remember, always ask yourself, when there's something, when there's something that you, you, you can see the crack in the unity, when you see that there's something bothering someone, you always ask this question, what brought us together? What brought us together? What united us in the first place? And then you ask, what is dividing us? What is separating us? That's vital. What brought us together and what is separating us? Is anything connected to what brought us together? Then yes, then it's serious and we need to deal with that. But if it's not, then you stop entertaining these things. What brought us together was not our personalities, style of music, location where we gather, financial status, our views of education, political affiliation. All these things have their importance, but that's not what brought us together. Amen? You did not come to this church because of certain members' view on social issues, political issues, educational issues. You came to this church because of our fundamental doctrinal convictions about the gospel. What the gospel is, what the gospel affects the church, the life in the local church. And I just want to share my heart here. We are living in a time that's getting more and more divisive. It's getting more and more divisive. I have been talking to pastors, I have been seeing churches, division all over the place. A lot of this division is flowing out of what? Political issues. Political issues. Was this political issues that brought us together? I, I just talked last week with a person who goes to a faithful church here. They were in a camping, a church camping. He said that the whole camping was divided. Those who believe that people should be vaccinated, those who should not believe they should not be vaccinated. Those who believe that the church should be doing more social justice issues and those who believe that the church should not be doing anything. And that's not bringing the division. It's just revealing that was lacking this fronel of Christ. That's what it is. It's not bringing division. It's actually just revealing that their unity that they had was not a unity of thinking, feeling, and acting Christ Jesus for the welfare of the whole church. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that despite all our secondary views, the Lord has been preserving us united. In this church, we have people who have been vaccinated. We have people who have not been vaccinated. And the vaccine did not bring us together. The Lord has been very gracious towards us. We have a responsibility to preserve this unity. We all need to be careful how we say about our convictions to one another. Some people here have very strong convictions. 
And sometimes you come across very rude, lack of compassion. We all have our views about what's going on outside. We all have our views, our understanding. Masks, vaccines, vaccine ID card. We just need to be careful how we talk, what we post, that we are striving to preserve the unity of the church. The Lord has been very gracious. The Lord has been very gracious towards us. Since last year, when we start meeting again, and the Lord has been preserving the unity of this church, despite different views, we have a duty to maintain this unity. And I want to let you know that more is coming. More political issues are coming. And they're not going to bring division. They're going to reveal where our hearts are. That's it. These things that are coming, they're just God's grace in just opening the doors of our hearts and say, let's see, show us your heart. Show us your heart. Show us your fronel here. Is that a fronel of Christ or is that a fronel of man, an earthly fronel? That's what's taking place. And it's going to happen more, brothers and sisters. Some people in this church might lose their jobs because of the vaccines, because they don't think they should get the vaccines. Others think they should get the vaccines. And we must be kind, gracious towards one another in their convictions. And when someone loses a job because of his conviction that he should not get the vaccine, you don't say, ah, you see, good for you, right? We work together. We love one another. We maintain the pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that's ours in Christ Jesus. Oh, there's absolutely no problem at all in telling your conviction. We should have this honesty to talk about clearly what I believe and why I'm doing that or why I'm not doing that. But always with a spirit of grace Understanding that your words might harm the unity of the church. And that our prayer would be, Lord, kill me. Kill me before I bring harm to the unity that you bought with your blood. So, fight and pray to maintain this unity. This church is the theater of God's wisdom, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. This local church here reflects the wisdom of God in bringing all these people with very different backgrounds together. And you cannot find that in the world. You cannot find that. With one fronel, one mind, one affection, one will, one purpose. And that's beautiful. This church is beautiful. But let me tell you something. We are a target of Satan. And we need to be watchful 
that we will not be like Peter and be Satan's tool. Amen. Father, we we praise you and we thank you for this time together. Lord, I I'm humbled by your grace upon our lives. We deserve nothing but hell. And yet you're very gracious towards us. Thank you for this beautiful local church that you have put together in Christ. It is indeed a theater of your wisdom. Displays the glory of unity with majestic diversity. So I, I, I beg you, Lord, you would help us. Help us to seek to maintain this church, the unity that you have bought with your blood. Help all of us, Lord. The days are evil. But we have a majestic, glorious God who takes care of us. So surround us with chains of love and place our feet upon solid doctrine so we may have a thronel in Christ, a pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting towards one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand.